What does Prince Harry's book, a Christian college electing a lesbian student body president, and someone calling math racist have in common? I'll explain on this week's Corey Truax Show. I think it was Wilhelm Heigl, the German philosopher in the 1850s, who coined the term Zeitgeist. It's a compound word in German he put together that we have often called in the modern age in philosophy the spirit of the age. He was even trying to draw on an, a, something of a spiritual idea, a biblical idea, where there are principalities and powers of the air, something spiritual that informs the minds of humans, and sometimes... You know, we might say there's something in the water. Everyone's see, seeming to be going the same direction on a given phenomenon. And I have often been, as a, I'm not an historian, but one who pretends to be, and generally trying to understand the world around me, I've been interested in zeitgeists, the spirit of the age that informs so much of the culture. And I've been dancing around one with you for a while here on the Corey Truax Show, on his radio talk, and wherever you find podcasts. But I think I finally found a way to systematize it, and we're going to do that for most of the show today, but we will not start there. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts, amongst many other things, I get to serve the awesome people of Beachwood Church as their pastor for teaching. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, and you are invited. I would add here, I'll be, if the Lord wills, finishing up the Gospel of Mark series in the month of February. We're at there, right there at the end. We're down to betrayal of Judas and Gethsemane and then the betrayal of Peter, the trial, that sham trial, the crucifixion, the resurrection. We're going to try to jam all that into four sermons. I'm looking forward to it. would love to have you. And then it does appear that we're going to start looking at the law. Our lead pastor will start walking through uh, the, the law's relevance to us today, Those the, the biblical Old Testament law. It's uh, I think it's so relevant toward the churches right now. Uh, so you're invited out. If you're without a church home, we'd love to have you to get started in the new year in church. Speaking of, we are opening all of the Corey Truax shows in 2023 with what would happen if we were all reading the Bible chronologically together, the events in history. And if you would have done that this week, you would have basically finished the uh, the uh, the book of Genesis. You'd be right there at the end here in this first month. We would have gone all the way through Genesis and Job. And so as I listened through it, read through it some this uh, over the last week, I came up with a theme I want to give you. It is not original to me. I can't remember where I heard this the first time, but I think it's a really good, a really good way to, to recognize the generations of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you read Genesis or get a good study Bible, you'll see that. The way Genesis tends to break down is giving you the generation of Abraham, the generation of Isaac, the generation of Jacob, and there were some before that. And it's just like their, the story of their part of the patriarchy. Not you, not using that word in the modern day where it's just like, men rule everything and it's bad. I mean, the actual, the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith. To, to be ruled by father is what the word patriarchy means. To ruled by the fathers. Here's what I, w- I want to give you in the themes as you read through or listen through the back end of Genesis with the patriarchs of the Jewish faith, the patriarchs of ultimately our faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their and the Jacob's sons, they are creative retellings. They're amongst other things. Lots of things happening here in those stories. 
one of the themes you can pick up is that their repeated failures, and they are repeatedly failures, are responded to by God's faithfulness. Pick up that Baptist alliteration. Their failures get God's faithfulness in response. Remember last week we talked about covenants. God made a covenant with Abraham, and continually the people with whom he makes covenants fail. Take Abraham. He betrays his wife in two ways. I think it's twice he, he straight up tells a, another leader, no, this isn't my wife. No, just to try to get himself out of trouble, you know, try to maintain safety. He at least does that once. Straight up denies his wife is his wife. He betrays his wife a second time by not trusting God and listening to his wife who says, you know, we're supposed to have this covenant, you know, descendants of the stars of the sky, descendants of the, the sands on the, on the beaches, go into my, into my servant Hagar. And have a son. And they do, Ishmael. And despite his denying his wife and then denying the covenant by not trusting God, all that God does is he continues to come back to Abraham and reiterate the covenant. I'm going to be a God. Oh, you're God. I'm going to make my people through you. Abraham fails and God is faithful. You can think about Isaac. His, his sins are harder to recognize, but as he encounters a famine, instead of moving into his own land that God promised. He starts moving back towards Egypt, always a sign of always a sign of sin. We'll skip through him fairly quickly because I want to keep this short and move on to the more obvious one, Jacob, who's depicted from the beginning as a deceiver, grabbing on to his his elder brother's foot or ankle as he's coming out of the womb. This is a guy who plots against his own family to to take the birthright, to take the, take on a birthright. Except for him being deceived by Laban, he, he mostly gets away in, some, in a lot of ways with what he's done. Takes on four wives. And even after all of Jacob's misdeeds, we get that incredible dream of, of beings coming in and out of heaven and that, that really dramatic story of wrestling with Yahweh, wrestling with God where he holds on to God and says he's not going to let him go until he's blessed, and there's the dislocation of the hip thing or whatever that injury is. And, and he, God reiterates to this Jacob, who is a failure machine, I will be faithful. I'm going to be faithful to the promise I made to your father and to his father. You take it on a whole other accelerated track of failure when you get to Jacob's sons. Jacob's sons conspire against one of their own brothers to kill him only to sell him into slavery instead. And then Jacob's sons, while one, Joseph is quite faithful, his whole life's sort of a disaster going from the pit there and sold into slavery to the to prison. I guess it goes to Potiphar's house and then to prison. That's the old Baptist alliteration I learned. But even by the end of that book, God showing his faithfulness through Joseph as Joseph stares at the face of what was evil to him, what his brothers did to him. To him, He forgives them. He, he has for them safety from what is ailing them, the, the famine that's going to starve them. Now, we all love that phrase. I bring it up a lot. It, it's, a, it's a phrase jo- Joseph says to his brothers at the end. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
but it is a, a phrase not just for Joseph, but it's almost like speaking sense over the entire book of Genesis. As the characters continue to fail, God is working his covenant, working his plan, working in his sovereignty to accomplish all that he will, and to their failures, God just to conti- God continues to pro- provide, he continues to be faithful. Just in this moment, I got distracted there because it just popped into my head, that old hymn. All I have needed, your hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Even there at the book, at the end of the book of Genesis, it's a there's blessing that Jacob pronounces over his sons as he dies. As he's now the purveyor of the covenant God made to Isaac and Abraham, now to him, and he's blessing his sons. There's failure everywhere in that group, and God is just continuing to be faithful. So what that what might that be for you? What was a good takeaway for you? I'm gonna assume that you're like me. And maybe you have failed, maybe recently, maybe spectacularly. I have good news for you if you are in Christ. God is faithful. That is not an excuse to keep on sinning. The fact that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins when we confess them, the exact wrong response to that is to keep on sinning. We have this great high priest who is who has provided for us punishment for our sin that he absorbed into himself, the response to that, to his faithfulness to us, would be faithfulness to him. So I'm encouraging you as we go to break here. Have you failed? Are you failing? God's faithfulness waits for us. God's faithfulness, I shouldn't say waits, pursues us, pursues your repentance so that you can come back into the covenant Back into the covenant God has made that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you have fallen down, the proverb says it's the righteous man who falls down seven times but gets back up. As you get back up, that's called just repentance, faith, and following after Jesus. There's much you can take from the end of Genesis. Well, here's one takeaway for today. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are stories of failure as spectacular as yours. And just that same God who was faithful to them is faithful to lift you back up and now follow after him. When we come back, I have systematized a spirit of the age, the zeitgeist of the day, has to do with disruption, deconstruction, and the end of institutions. We'll do that for probably the rest of the show. And guys, so the examples I have for you are compelling. We're going to talk about Prince Harry's book. We're going to talk about a Christian college that was once super solid, electing a lesbian student body president. A professor who says math itself is a racist construct. We're going to do all that to explain the spirit of the day. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Making sense of the times in which we live. I know it can be a challenge every day you're out in a news cycle and or even just interacting with people that you know. You hear things, you witness things, you hear stories that are disorienting, they are discouraging, and it's. I hope it will drive us to lots of things, but one of those is trying to understand the cultural milieu, this zeitgeist, a spirit of the age in which we live, so that we might better understand it, and therefore know how to prepare for it and respond to it. We'll get started on that in just a moment. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Find me, your host, Corey 
Truax on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Easy to do. Just find me, Corey Truax. And you can also email the show at show at gmail.com. We'd love to get your thoughts, opinions, or stories you think should be shared. I'll check those as often as I can. What we're about to do is not intellectual navel-gazing. It's not just philosophical. The, the navel-gazing phrase, people who think about useless things. Like, what? why do I have a belly button? Where's the belly button come from? This actually is a, a good exercise to understand the times in which we live. It's not directly a Mars Hill from the Book of Acts principle, but it's something like a Mars Hill act. You know, Paul, on that discourse, made a point to the people around him using the culture that he was in. He saw, you guys have a lot of gods. You even have this one god, or this one idol marked to the unknown god. And he used their cultural milieu, wanting to please all the gods, to try to make a point. So it is important for us to understand the times in which we live. I have identified some of the phenomena on the show. We've done plenty of content on deconstruction. People openly leaving the faith and trying to reconstruct a faith, not renovate, not throw out the bad parts and keep the good, but deconstruct their faith and then make up their own. We've seen disruption. This is a business word that I've talked about a good bit over the last nine years. Early in the show, that's really when Uber and Lyft, Airbnb were all becoming a thing, and I was big fans of those. That's business disruption, where you overturn, uh, let's go with long-standing parts of an economy. And I've covered with regularity the diminishing faith people have in institutions. The things that held us together, our families falling apart, our neighborhoods falling apart, our jobs and careers, because we switched them so much, falling apart. Media now being not broadcasting, but narrowcasting. If you don't know that term yet, that's a term out in, in media schools that we don't broadcast anymore. You just need to find a, an audience big enough to support your lifestyle. And you can do that with less than 100,000 people. So you can narrowcast. So that breaks us into even smaller groups. And then we don't, we don't trust our elections anymore. We don't trust the government there is some of that, you know, not trusting the government, there's some health there, by the way. Generally skeptical even of people we call experts. And I've, I've covered on the show the, the theme that it seems to be of this age, that above all else, be true to yourself. Not true to your roles as husband, wife, daughter, son, employee, brother, sister, neighbor, don't be true to what others expect of you, just be you, be true to yourself. Those are the things I've covered before. And so if you think it's going to be a rerun, don't think so. I think I've come to something more systematic and a story to tell. So let me start with a story, and then I will give some examples as we go of what I think I've systematized. We'll start with disruption. The idea of disruption in a market economy is good. We are a market economy. We believe wealth is not, we believe wealth is created by trade. People trading with each other freely. Goods for goods, labor for labor, goods for labor, whatever it is, money for money for labor, or then money for goods. Trade is that which creates wealth and prosperity. And part of a market economy is creative destruction. Some things get destroyed because on our way to creating a better thing, I could give you, pl- I could give you plenty of examples. But you know, one of my favorites is 
there was a, a moral panic when the car came along, the internal combustion engine, and then applied to vehicles because economies that were revolving around horses would be destroyed. People that bred horses to do work and transport people, the people who did horseshoes, those who cleaned up horse dung, city jobs of cleaning up the after the horses, those are going to be destroyed. And the answer for all of us is, yeah, yeah, of course. The horse economy will be destroyed, but look how much better the economy is going to be. There is creative destruction in market economies, and we have largely admired, historically, the people who come along and disrupt in commerce and technology. We admire people who reject how it's always been. So Netflix comes in and wrecks Blockbuster, and we all liked it better. First DVDs to our mailbox and no late fees. You just do it on my own time, and I can't get Blockbuster to you know, hit me with those late fees. I don't have to go to the store just mailing it to me. And then eventually not even needing to get a, a disc, but just streaming it to me. Streaming comes along and disrupts broadcast television so that ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC don't own everything. And now we have a really bifurcated system. Well, it's a multifurcated system, but it did disrupt it. Airbnb disrupted hotels and had and made them better. Peloton, CrossFit, Orange Theory came along and disrupted how fitness worked. Spotify required not just terrestrial radio that plays music, but the entire music industry and how it was monetized had to change because Spotify came along. And so the uh, the profit sharing between the, like the, the labels versus the artists, and for that matter, what YouTube did to that industry with not even needing a gatekeeper anymore. You don't need an, an agent or an important person to say you're good enough to go, go put yourself out there. YouTube was just there. And if you're good enough, enough people will find you. Now, I have always been a fan of those things. I celebrate the idea of disruption in systems and I celebrate the fruits of of that disruption, when we find something new that was better than the old. I definitely have been into that, and I am into that. Then disruption started reaching other institutions. Certainly that early Tea Party movement I was a part of, and I admire it. I think they had it right. Went off the rails eventually, but not all the way off the rails. It just lost focus. But that was disrupting how primaries worked and politics worked. At the same time, Occupy Wall Street had come along and taken that business disruption and tried to take it to another realm. Of course, I'll cover this later, one of the big differences in that political disruption at the time was one system, people like me, Tea Party people, had a replacement. We were saying, yes, the system is bad, it needs to be reformed or torn down, but I have a system, it's right here, it's the Constitution, it's the Declaration, let's do that, whereas Occupyism was... Just destroy everything, and we, whatever happens, happens. Just destroy. The point is destruction. So we saw it. We, we, we saw that disruption going into into politics, and then it hit faith, where we started seeing the big public falling away of big names. So in in all of that disrupting and all of that deconstructing, there was some good at the beginning, especially because of the beginning. We were trying to replace old things with new things. And even the faith part, it's not good on deconstruction, but some of that could be taken as a renovation, and some people stayed you know, st- stay true to just a, a, a more accurate version of Christianity. But I don't want to get caught up on the, those details. One of the things that was true of deconstruction and disruption is there was supposed to be, there was often a replacement. We wanted to make things better. 
And what started to take place with our institutions, I've already mentioned some of those, so the idea of uh, of business, family, neighborhoods, career, uh, the whatever, commu- whatever community you're part of, that's a campus community, a church community. We started to tear them down not to make them the s- better or make them the center. What started happening is we were going to replace the institutions that we were disrupting and deconstructing, replace it with the self. Our obsession with the self. I'd refer you to that great book of the last few years, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. It really is a good understanding and rundown of what happened to us. And I'm giving you some of that now. What used to be the case was that institutions shaped us. I've given you, I've given you this before. The family you were in, your role as son, daughter, shaped what you were expected to do. The school you went to, the expectations that were given of your loyalty to that school spirit or where you're supposed to be and when you're supposed to be there. Your your church, the things you're supposed to believe. To be a member of this family, to be a member of this church, to be a member of this school, to be a member of this neighborhood. These are the things you must change. You must comport yourself to the institution. The institution exists. You don't get to come along until the institution it's it's just wrong and should change because of how you feel. You're the center of the universe. You change yourself to mold to the institution. And now where we are, the mood is, and in my storytelling here, started to become that the institutions should mold themselves around the self. Your family should mold itself around you. Your church should change to mold around your preferences. Your employer should change policies to match better what you're looking for. Your government should make laws or exceptions to laws for you. The self is now the primary constituency, and it looks at all the institutions and says, you change for me. I'm not changing for you. Now, that's that's my postulation. That's my theorizing. Disruption and deconstruction was the spirit of the age. We were replacing things with better things, we don't end on this point, but that second point is we're, we started to replace all of the purposes of institutions, of culture, is that the self might be fulfilled, and it would be its true. We could all be our truest selves, whatever that means, and not have any rec- uh, requirements, not have any expectations placed on us by our families, our neighborhoods, our schools, our churches, our governments, that we would just be free to be me. Now, let me illustrate that to you. I don't know that anyone has done a better job of illustrating that in the last few years than Prince Harry in this book that he has out that's now the best-selling book of the last few years, outsold both Obama's, uh, Michelle and Brock's, outsold all these nonfiction autobiographies. He's He has one of the best-selling of all time now, and in the modern era, he's already going to be the bestseller. Of course, before I get into what's going to sound like criticism, and it's not, I'm trying to use him as an example for where we are in the spirit of the age. I have sympathy for the guy, of course. He's my age. I think he might be a year or two older than me. I didn't face the tragedy he did. I didn't lose my mom as a kid. My family didn't treat me like a spare. If you haven't heard, that's his title of the book, and that's how he seems to be treated like a child, that his older brother was the heir to the throne, and so Prince Harry grew up as just the spare. You just got to... Got to have one. He's just a, he's just an add-on. 
I never had any of that. I always felt like I was a center of attention for my parents. So I, I feel some sympathy for him. Here's what he's done, though. With, I think the word is alacrity. He has gone after, aggressively, the institution of royalty, the institution of a royal family, of monarchy itself. He spared no one in this book, as I've seen read the reviews. He's raged against and has left the institution of his royal family. It's in, he's left it smoldering, at least as far as he's concerned. And he's emblematic of the moment. Burn it down. If, if it was something, if my family or the institution of royalty itself asked me to subjugate my individuality, if I couldn't be exactly what I wanted to be and it wanted me to be something else, then it's the thing that must go. I would never change for it. I wish I wish we could be in that era that instead of where Harry is coming from, that I will tear down the institution that told me to be anything but myself. The era of his grandmother was so much better. And she had a, a speech after she died that, Went viral again. Just her, uh, what do you call that? You're inaugurated, I think. Inaugurations are for it's coronations. Yeah. After she's coronated, she gives that speech where she appeals to duty. She says to the people, "I will do my duty for you." And there's even a line in there about diminishing her own personality and self-expression. Go. It's a fairly short speech. You can go find it on YouTube. Imagine thinking that to do my duty to you. As leader, as queen, I will diminish my own personality, my own self-expression, my own desires. She even said she draws on history in that speech to to best embody the institution. So I'm going to subjugate myself to be the bigger thing, which is to fill my role. And instead, that generation, which did that good thing, they subjugated themselves to fill their roles. Harry has come along as a great emblem of the spirit of the age and says, No! I'm not playing any of my roles. It doesn't make me feel like me. And the most important thing is for me to feel like me. I pulled just a couple quotes from the book to illustrate this. Quote, he writes, Each new identity assumes the throne of self, but takes us further from our original self, perhaps our core self, the child. End quote. He's saying there, each new identity that he was given, you're the second born. You're a member of the royal family. You're going to be the duke of this, or whatever it is. You're a, a member of this family, and so you need to comport yourselves in these ways because it's a matter of honor and duty. He says, well, those get put on the throne of self. That's his words, not mine. Throne of self. And every time that was hoisted upon him, that you are Diana's daughter, you are Elizabeth's grandson, you are the second born of this family. He says, that just takes me from my, my original self. He even says that perhaps the core self is the child. He's getting into some psychology there. There, And I think he's wrong. Our core selves are not our child of the shelves. It's time to put behind childish things eventually and grow up. Don't be who you were as a child. We're, we're not at our best as children. Time to grow up. Another quote from the book very soon after. He says, there was a script and I, ha- I had the audacity not to follow it. So he's outright saying what I've been saying to you. 
you have a script as a son, as a grandson, as a member of the royal family. You have duties to fulfill. And he says, oh, I have the audacity to have to follow the script. And he's mad at the institution for telling him to ever follow it. He's an incredible representation of this era because the institution that had, consider that, the institution shaped everyone else in his family, almost. 99% of the family was shaped by the institution. They understood their role and played it. And he says, no. I will do what I want. And the institution can get over it. can mold itself around me. Something else I notice here is he, he doesn't have anything to replace it with. I think that's the next step. In our disruption and deconstruction, we wanted to first do a good thing, replace old things with better things. Then we replace those things with the self. But eventually we replace it with nothing. I think this generation, his generation, which is mine, and the one behind me, we are really good at telling you what we despise. And it's often everyone who came before us. They were all backwards. We're not good at telling you what should be, what the oughts are, what ought to be. And it just seems to be that's where his book is. Just to tell you, the royalty, royal family, it's bad. Tear it down. Oh, what should be in its place or should we do anything else? I don't know. Just tear it down. Burn it to the ground. It asked me not to be my truest self. Another example of this. There's a Christian university, Calvin University. used to be a solidly Christian college. You can probably tell by the name. And they just elected their first ever non-heterosexual student body president, a lesbian, a lesbian girl. And her statements uh, and, and that, that student paper and some of the things said around it are emblematic. Again, just like Prince Harry was. It's emblematic of the moment. She goes to a college that writes down on paper before you come a sexual ethic. It's the biblical sexual ethic. She joins the college and then starts to try to change the ethic. Instead of going into the institution and the institution mold her, she actually gets into the institution and says, no, you must mold yourself around me. I am the center of everything. This institution must change its rules, must change its doctrine, because I don't feel right. I don't, I don't have the right emotions. So change for me. It's quite the... Um, it's quite the progression over time. There was a time where you could just exclude, you exclude people, exclude students, exclude from the group, whether that is your family, your church, your business, your your local organization, whatever it is. You just exclude people who don't meet the values. And then I think we progressed to, especially in Christian colleges, admitting a lot of students, and everyone's going to hold to the same. Let's go with behavioral standards. But those students that are present are openly saying, I don't need your reformation. I don't need change. I, I'm going to be who I am. Now, if you want me to behave for a certain way, a certain way for now, fine, whatever. But I don't need any kind of change. Went from excluding to including, but them saying, I don't want change, to the, ab- to the absolutely turning around. The, the student inside the institution looking at the institution and say, now you're excluded. You must change. And that's not, this is a university example that's just happening right now. But again, emblematic to the family, to business, to churches. You know, I, I know this is anathema to my group, my age group and younger, because we're just told, 
be yourself, the best thing you could ever be is yourself. And we, we suffer from this epidemic of loneliness I've been talking about for 10 years on the show. I think part of it stems from what I'm about to say to you. It used to be that if you didn't feel like you belonged to an institution, a school, your family, your church, it was incumbent upon you to change. If you're living, and this wasn't the case for everybody, but if you were living in a way that was so alienating to everybody else, maybe it's you. You're not even allowed to say that anymore. Maybe you're the problem. Maybe you're trying to live so outside of the the boundaries that this family, this school, this church, this community has established. Maybe you don't feel like you belong because you're so narcissistic you're unwilling to change yourself. Here's what I know about humanity. We need molds. Humans are clay. We are very moldable. In the institutions we have, our families, churches, schools, communities, those were the molds. They molded us into the version of us we were supposed to be. And now, as we are deconstructing and falling apart, and we're falling apart, we're disrupting and deconstructing, the inversion has happened. Every piece of clay is trying to look at the institutions and the molds and say, break you guys, we're all going to be just our own little pieces of clay. And we have, when you see the inversion happening, can you just imagine that in your head when all the clay says to the molds, get out of here. We're all going to do whatever we want. That is some shaky ground to try to build. That's a shaky ground on which to build a civilization. On everyone's fickle emotions, you can't build a civilization there. I have one more example of this. Actually, maybe a few more. And then a, a couple words on why it's important to let the institutions shape you. And we'll try to do it in a balanced way. But i got to take this uh, final break. We'll be back with the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts in just a moment. The story of our time, told as the tale of disruption, destruction, and the end, or deconstruction, in the, in the end of institutions. That's the narrative I am weaving with examples along the way. And then I will not leave you just with the facts. I also want to propose some kind of solution and the force that we need to be in the world in response to disruption, deconstruction, and the end of institutions. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. You can find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also get me at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, and I hope you will. I'm looking at the clock, and I know I need to go a little faster than I anticipated. So we see in Prince Harry's story, his book, and in the student at Calvin University, this idea of uh, the institution will not shape me. Royalty will not shape me. The college will not shape me. I will not mold the institution. The entire institution, the entire world, needs to mold to meet me. And I want to give you some more examples that that is the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist in which we're living. I think conservative media largely got the emphasis of the following story incorrect. There's a math professor at the University of Illinois named Dr. Rochelle Gutierrez. And she, admittedly, stupidly, has a, a, a submission in an anthology that's going out to teachers now alleging math itself is racist. Math, the, the concept of doing geometry, doing arithmetic, it is 
uh, it, it is the, a core a core level of whiteness, whiteness and white privilege in society. Of course, math just undergirds everything. It's all it is. Math is objective. It doesn't belong to anybody. Math is math no matter where you are on the planet, no matter your ethnicity. Two plus two is always four. Math, in a lot of ways, is is the force that's holding everything together. God is using mathematical forces. We explain what God is doing using mathematics. But she alleges math is racist. And so conservative media, even some Christian media, just kind of make fun of her for the dumb point. But look at the look at what she's actually trying to do there in disruption and deconstruction. By trying to tear down mathematics as a by the way, she's a math professor. Trying to trying to tear down mathematics as a discipline does something much more than just ride on the very dumb narrative regarding race in the United States. It is the objective field. There there is some subjectivity in literature and how you interpret it. There's some subjectivity in how we think about history and and who got who got to write the history books and the narratives therein. There's some subjectivity in even the interpretation of some of some of the sciences, not not a lot there, but it, maybe even different opinions on some things in biology and how how our bodies react to certain drugs or what the best course of action is in terms of nutrition. There are some subjectivity. Math is that one objective thing where we can appeal to it and say, yes, truth exists. There are objective rights and wrongs, yeses and nos. There are things that are not up for debate. By attacking it as racist, trying to tear it down, it's a further example of the deconstruction of the time, saying there can't be a mold. I won't even mold to mathematics. There's a a guy I follow from time to time on YouTube who does witnessing encounters, Christian evangelism encounters on the street. And every now and then he'll he'll get into a loop with somebody about truth, whether or not truth exists, if there's an objective reality. And you'll run into some folks, always under 40 crowd, who will, he'll, he'll say to them, what if I tell you 2 plus 2 is 5? And some folks are so ingrained in our subjective, idiotic culture, they'll say, if it is for you, then it is. If for you, 2 plus 2 is 5, then it is. Because we all get to have our individual realities. We will not say to anybody, no, you must mold yourself to math. A 90-degree angle is a right angle. Triangles have angles that add up to 180. I think that's true. Circles are 360 degrees, period, bottom line. You must mold yourself to that. We won't even say in this culture, you have to match the math. And she is an example of further trying to just deconstruct. I have at least two more for you. This might be peak deconstruction. This headline was written, I think, by the Washington Post on purpose to confuse you and to have to enter into the gender madness of the day. This is, word for word, the headline. Trans man gives birth after using female sperm donor. All of it makes zero sense on purpose. Trans man, that's a woman, gives birth, so the actual woman gives birth using female sperm. Those two things don't go together. There is no such thing as female sperm. That's a man who says he's a woman using a sperm donor from a 
a man who thinks he's a woman. This trans movement is further example of our deconstruction, where humans are saying to actual biology, the mold that is biology and then cultures around the world and throughout time, there are men and there are women. There are 0.00001% of people that are some ex- exception to that because of some kind of physiological odyssey. We'll call it that. We, we, will, look, we will look at parenthood, mother and, motherhood and fatherhood, and say, no, I will not mold myself to it. We'll look at parenthood that, that is, period, bottom line, for all mammalian, all mammal species. Uh, there's a father and a mother. There might be eggs involved that are hatched. There might be births, but one way or the other, there's men and women have kids. And we are looking even at that mold and saying, no, I refuse to be molded by that. I, I will have what I feel. And, uh, and objective reality can mold itself to me. I recently had this conversation with somebody about the pronoun discussion that, because there's some people that I work with in higher ed, not at North Greenville, by the way, but that put their, uh, quote, their pronouns at the end of their emails. So they'll sign their name, their title, their institution, and then put like, he, him, her, or excuse me, he, him, I guess it's just he, him. That is, it's such an imposition of this worldview of deconstruction that we don't, that, that we reject all molds. In the pronoun world, there's a first person pronoun, that's me, I'm the speaker, referring to me, there's a second-person pronoun. Second-person pronouns are people I would talk to in the room. So I would never refer to someone in the room, if I'm talking to you, as he has a nice shirt on. I would say, you have a nice shirt on. I would never say, she's good at her job. If I'm talking to you, I would say, you, you are good at your job. Or is that your lunch? That's the things I would say to you. The idea of a third-person pronoun says, even when I'm not around... You must mold your worldview to me. When you're talking about me when I'm not in the room, you need, to, you need to be molded by my imagination. You need to be molded by my emotions. Not that there's objective reality, that there's a mold of sex itself, and, you're, and you need to comport yourself to that mold. You want the entire planet. That's how narcissistic we are. You want the entire planet to mold itself to your imagination, your feelings, and your reality. That is peak deconstruction. That headline, trans man gives birth after using female sperm donor. They're trying to break the whole thing. I think back to, I mean, this is over 10 years ago now, one of the better movies of my lifetime was the Christopher Nolan Batman. That Batman series was incredible. But that first one with the Joker in it, that Heath Ledger played famously when soon after died. I feel, I think he was a prophetic warning. Art does this a lot. Artists see things coming, see a zeitgeist in the making because often culture is made. It, uh, let's say it that way. Culture is happening and it happens mostly where the most people are because culture is people. And so places like Hollywood, New York, they're going to be prophetic in some ways, not forthtelling or anything spiritual, but the art they make often tells us where we're going because they're seeing it happen in, in the world around them before it ever gets to the suburbs and the exurbs and the rural places. And that Joker character was an agent for 
deconstruction for the sake of deconstruction. There's at least two scenes I remember. One is Joker very menacingly says to, I think another criminal, maybe uh, he might say that to Batman, but he says something like, you have to introduce a little anarchy. When you upset the established order, everything becomes chaos. And he says of himself, I'm an agent of chaos. When Batman is talking to Alfred about the Joker and his, his motivations, because Batman's used to normal villains, they need a motivation, they need riches, they need, they're, they're going after something for themselves. And Alfred says to Batman, some people just like to watch the world burn. That's the moment we're in. Not to try to build anything. Just deconstruct for the sake of it. Now, in our final five minutes, I have an illustration for you, and then a word of, uh, let's go, encouragement of what we should be in this world that is deconstructing for the sake of it, rejecting all the molds for the sake of it, to be the fully atomized self. You know, we, I grew up, you probably grew up, with the concept of the shotgun marriage. The idea that if a man got a woman pregnant, sometimes, quote, at the point of a shotgun, the, they're going to get married. Because they've now comp- they have now took, taken part in a married act, they're going to get married, and especially if that woman now has, if she is, she's pregnant, you're, you're, you've created a family. Whether you got married or not, you did create a family now. There's a mom and there's a dad and there's a kid. Definition, you're a family. And for all the, any negative thing you want to say about that setup, I'll hear you. But here's what the ethic of the time did. The institution of the family molded those people. We would say to that, that, that man, you're a father now. Do the things that fathers do. You, you have made a family, sir. You're a, you're a head of household. You're now going to provide for this woman. You're going to provide for this kid. Madam, you're a mother now. Whatever you were before in your single lives whatever behaviors you were taking part in, whatever priorities you had and goals you had, those are done now. The institution of the family is calling you to something else. It's calling you higher. It's calling you to husband, to wife, to father, to mother. And so you now subjugate whatever desires you had, and you become a family. Again, I, I understand the, some weaknesses, obvious, in that ethic, but you can, you can see what we used to do. We would bend our wills to the institution. We would bend what we thought we needed to the institution and let the institution shape us. So now, for us. That's an ethic for us to adopt. I want to make sure you hear this. That is not calling you to be uncreative. That's not calling you to, be, to think not outside of the box, try to make things better. One of, one of the beauties in this world when it comes to music, art, TV, is when someone finds something seemingly new, a new way to tell a story, a new chord progression we haven't heard really, a new sound that we've not, we've not really heard anyone make. We love that stuff. But that's not really just deconstruction, it's disruption, as we talked about at the beginning. So be creative, but the creative is to build something new and ordered, something that's still good and beautiful. That's not destroying that is being a creative person inside structures because, the, again, mold. This is, 
Oh, uh, I, I won't make that illustration. I was going to make fun of a certain kind of music. There are some musics that break music. They don't follow the the beautiful chord patterns that we that our brains just recognize as good. There is some art that is ugly on purpose because it's trying to make make some kind of point. It breaks the rules and never tries to establish anything new or beautiful. We are not those people. When we do something new and creative, we're trying to establish new or we're still working inside of the idea of a mold, the mold being that which is beauty, beautiful, that's that which is good. So here's that call to you to finish. We are the people of building things. God is not the author of chaos. God calls us together in the earliest pages of the Bible to collaboration. He calls us to synergy and coming together. That's the people he had in mind for himself. And so in your own life, that's the agent of change that you are. We're people that build trust in ourselves, in our families, in our churches. We behave ourselves and comport ourselves so that we can build trust in us and institutions around us. We lead in a way in our families, churches, businesses, communities that trust can be built. We build families. We are not the people who... Uh, we're not going to be the people of divorces. We're not going to be the people of cr- uh, men cre- creating families and they're not taking care of their kids. We're not the people of disintegrating churches. Uh, we're, we're not the people of uh, of not helping our neighbors. In a world where it's easy to get cynical as it tries to destroy everything, we will stick out in the best of ways by being people of construction. Build up people around you. Say the, say the nice thing about the person at work. When someone's getting torn down, be the, be the affirmer. You don't have to be cheerleader in a false way. But I wanted to do those two things today. One, identify it systematically. We're in a time of disruption, deconstruction, and it's deconstruction for the fake, uh, for the, just for the fact of it. And instead, we're going to be the people where we can make new molds, but we're going to chase after being inside the mold of beauty and good and build things up in this world. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.